how to transition from this kind of thing that this model that we have and it works here into these experiments, but I move that to a, a real world scenario where there are data that you didn't expect. There is yeah. a scale that you didn't expect. There is all sorts of real world kind of yeah. changes. And this remains a challenge, like uh, how to get all of this technology and ship it as a product that is reliable and you can really trust on. Yeah. How is AI changing the way we solve and approach problems? What's multimodality and why is it so exciting? What is the impact of machine learning? And what's the journey like in data science at one of the most important travel tech companies in the world? Hi, I'm your host Pratik, and this is Behind the Journey by Getty Guide, a show where we explore and uncover what it's really like to build the experience economy by diving deeper into the journeys of people making it happen. Today, I'm excited to have Jean Machado here. Jean is a data science manager at Getty Guide, and he shares a fascinating perspective on AI, machine learning, mentorship, the importance of community, and more. He draws from his journey dealing with the intricacies of computer games back in the day to now tackling some of the most important problems in tech. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you do too. This podcast is by Get Your Guide, a company on a mission to connect millions of travelers with some of the most unforgettable experiences around the world. Imagine local experts giving guided tours, skip the line tickets to your favorite attractions, or exclusive bucket list experiences. Get Your Guide is headquartered in Berlin, and since its launch in 2009, travelers have booked more than 80 million activities through the platform. And all of it is made possible by a global team. So if you're looking for your next role and the thought of making an impact on how people experience the world sounds exciting to you, head to getyourguide.careers. That's getyourguide.careers. Hi, Jean. Welcome. Welcome to Behind the Journey. How are you doing? Hello. Thanks for having me and doing great. It's Friday. I'm excited for the weekend. That's good to hear. Coming to excitement, actually, I have a, I have a long list of questions for you. But the, f- the first one that I wanted to ask is, what is the most exciting thought that's living in your head at the moment? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question. But one thing, thinking on the spot, it's easy to pull out is thinking around this area of multimodality in, in AI. Sounds very interesting for me. I'm pretty much follow the news and trying to stay engaged on it. Can you expand multimodality in general for everyone? Sure. It's it's idea that with AI machine learning and so on, there is usually data is in forms of numbers or text and so on, but how to bring the other senses to the picture. So a picture indeed is one example of yeah. bringing images back to machine learning to solve all sorts of problems now with a little bit more of senses of the real world beyond mm. just bare data. Where do you see it going? There is applications everywhere. I see that OpenAI, for instance, is doing huge progress on this, and we are seeing all of this kind of and with text a lot of speed. to image, a yeah. lot of speed. Yes, exactly. This is a very research topic at the moment, but they are shipping products at the same time, so they are speeding up a lot of stuff in this area. And you've been very close to all the AI action, specifically at Getty right? Can you reflect on the last one year? How has the landscape changed? Yeah, there is a big kind of a big positive surprise, I have to say. Everybody's engaged about this. Everybody's talking about it. Society, governments, everybody really. And speeding up, indeed, huge progress every week as a new yeah. development. And it's very hard actually to keep up. But at the same time, it's a much more inclusive space at the moment. Like yeah. so much more folks that can deliver value. So pretty exciting, I have to say. At GetaGuide itself, we had been using AI for a very long time. 
how has that changed within the company? I think we've been very much fast movers. There is a lot of momentum within the company. Tons of folks engaged, tons of presentations, knowledge sharing, use cases, going to production or more exploratory topics as well. So yeah, we are following the kind of the big movement that's going on and learning a lot. Some of our practices improve, but a lot is also much the same as before. And given that this space is so exploratory, there's a lot that are open questions that need to be figured out. And we can use these learnings from the way we've been doing data products before yeah. and bring it back, like best practices and so on. What are some of those open questions? Can you go deeper on that? There is so much about trust and, and safety, like what you're shipping to mm -hmm. production, can you really control and, and how to observe what's going on, how to assert that it meets certain criteria of quality and so on. All of these questions tie back to best practices, how to go to production, yeah. which is, yeah, a big topic uh, dear to me as well. Yeah. Can you expand on just the challenges of, in general, going to production? And Yetagat has a huge scale. Mm -hmm. um, and as an industry as well, what are some of the challenges that you've been hearing from other people in different industries? That's a great question. Machine learning has started as much of an academic pursuit. And there was at some point before MLOps become a big thing and still a problem that how to transition from this kind of thing that this model that we have and it works here into these experiments and move that to a, a real world scenario where there are data that you didn't expect. There is yeah. a scale that you didn't expect. There is all sorts of real world kind of yeah. changes. And this remains a challenge, like uh, how to get all of this technology and ship it as a product that is reliable and you can really trust on. Yeah. It's a big topic and I don't think it, we will run away of problems to solve in any point. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exciting. Yes. Have you, what has been your usage like of, in general, like personally, from productivity standpoint um, of AI tools? AI tools, yes. I mean, I mean, ChatGPT is so powerful, right? I think it was a big surprise on how much, even like just navigating German bureaucracy becomes so much easier now yeah. with using these tools. Going beyond like more to development tools, yeah, I'm a big use of, big user of Copilot. Yeah. Um, I'm also a big believer in building your own tools, so use the SDK here and there, and so specific problems, uh, yeah, yeah, using this kind of technology. So, yeah. I I, th I think I don't have any kind of super nitty gritty specific tool beyond the ones that, that I built for recommending here. Just the classical yeah. ones. Yeah. Stick with uh, some sort of complexion tool. Charger B itself. It's very yeah. powerful. I think the, the developer community is also shipping things so fast with respect to AI tools. I, I remember there was a few months back there was a talk about this tool called Cursor. It's, a, uh, it's basically a fork of VS Code. And Cursor is amazing. One of the things that it does really well is like you can use your own OpenAI API key. You can put in mm -hmm. and you can use 3.5 for GPT-4. But I think one of the best things that I like about it is that, that it has indexed documentation. So you can chat with your code, but you can also reference documentation, which makes it much more reliable in terms of output. And I, I think there are going to be more tools like that yes. in, in general. I think the great products are still being built, but indeed there are so kind of obvious problems that need to be solved and one needs to really make it very well polished to really solve the problem. It is one topic, for instance, on like you get an error on your system, 
how to move from that very descriptive error message to solving that problem. A tool that is language equipped with large language models can definitely have a very good chance of solving such yeah. type of problems, but the product is still not there. Yeah. But it will come for sure. Any tips for people who, who are exploring AI and maybe non-engineers in general? How can they keep up? How can they, for example, look at the seismic shift that's happening and make use of it in their interest? I, I like a lot of this area of agents also that yeah. solving very narrow problems deeply. But at the same time, tying a little bit more to your question, I think the ecosystem will evolve and new tools will be available. Mm. We'd stick a lot with OpenAI at the moment as they are clear, clearly on the lead and try to use ChatGPT for your problems as much as you can. Yeah, following some news sources and so on to stay on top. There is all this assistance on like other tools that I think will be exciting if you're using some cloud. Google Docs and so on, there is already some prototypes on Google. Yeah, these things will get much better over time. And so whatever you are doing in the tools that you use, are there tools that are already solving it with AI enabled to make it even easier or mm -hmm. in the same class of tool? Or maybe your tool already has and you just need to learn it. Can you expand? You briefly mentioned about it. Can you expand on agents in general? Yeah. So the prompt format is open text, no context, or you can add a little mm -hmm. bit of context in the text format. But in the applications we are using, there is a lot of context. We are using an application for a specific purpose and it has connections to other tools. Can you uh, give an example? Google Docs, for instance, has connections to presentations and so on, or to your drive with a lot of your data. Agents will play a big role in connecting all this dot and solve very well a problem, not so much into kind of starts from first principles where you have to outline the whole textual problem, yep. but they will use a lot of the context and solve problems for you. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's very cool. And on context specifically, there's also a lot of industry talk about fine-tuning versus RAG, retrieval augmentation. Can you walk us through what does that mean and what's your view on it? Mm -hmm. When to use which? Yes. RAG specifically is not a part that I focused a lot. So it's my personal opinion, but my view is that RAG is for retrieving documents and where you have a, a fact that you are trying to retrieve. And so you can basically use RAG to get you to the right place. While fine-tuning is more generic, right? It's like changing your model to, to become better at certain tasks. You could use fine-tuning for improving the performance of a RAG system by adding more context and so on to make it better. So I, I think they fulfill different use cases and they can be even used in conjunction. Can you give an example? Yes. Let's say we are building a chatbot which has frequent asked questions from like a support system. Yeah. One can basically use ChatGTP and use RAG over the documents to basically have a vanilla version of RAG on ChatGTP. Yeah. Or you can fine-tune it. Basically, your model, let's say, ChatGTP for having your tone of voice or something like yeah. this. And then yeah. using these two things in conjunction, you're going to retrieve documents and the answer to your questions will be even more tuned to basically... It's similar uh, to what OpenAI recently custom GPTs where you can mm, upload, yeah. uh, upload your knowledge base and then have it act in a certain way. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, a much more tuned version of uh, um, for chat, for example. Mm -hmm. I think there, though, there's no fine-tuning behind the scenes. I'm not so sure because I'm not on, totally on top on this. Yeah. But uh, indeed, you can improve performance or factors that you also care about 
tone of voice or a structure if you need some certain sort of structure in yeah. your output. And fine-tuning? What in about example? it? Uh, fine-tuning. There is many reasons one can use it. I think from the AI perspective, the most common is the tone of voice is, is I think, the core one that OpenAI also advertises a lot. But you can remove the head of the model for any kind of tasks, like a text processing task, like you can start doing classification with a, a large language model. So you would fine tune that large language model in a classification task and it would suddenly start not being a generic model anymore, but like a classification system. So there is many reasons to do it. So if I understand correctly, fine tuning is more about teaching the model to do something truly novel, so something new that it does not know in general, right? Yeah, exactly. One can teach it something novel or influence it to do something in a slightly more refined way, specific. One indeed changes the behavior of the model in a more fundamental way. What's been your experience? And I know you fine-tune a lot. So how has your experience been just fine-tuning mm -hmm. models for your use cases? It's early days and the field evolves a lot. There is different kind of ways one can do it. One can use OpenAI and then you have this API experience, but you lose all the control. Although it's probably a great way to start for many problems that you want to solve fast. If you want to go more deep, fine tune open source model like Llama, then yeah, that it's also getting better and better, easier and easier. There is a couple of tools that are becoming very standard, like Hugging Face. Of course, you need a, a GPU. You could also do without it, but it's so much harder that I, yeah. I, I don't count it as an option. And then there is the standard process as well. It's very much like machine learning, more classical machine learning, but it involves a little bit more of hardware and some steps of yeah. preparation. Got it. So when we were talking a while back, just before the podcast, you mentioned games and complex systems and how they sparked your interest in computers. How have these early experiences reflected in your current approach to problem solving? In general? That's a very deep question. Let me try to unpack it. I think the problem solving component on it, games, they are very kind of logical things. And you can see with simple rules, you can have very complex behavior. And back in the day, also when I played games in my first experiences, I had a very bad computer and I had to hack it around to make things work. Because back <laughs> to that time, where, how was it like? Where were you? What stage of your life were you on? I was maybe 13 years old and got this old computer and Do you wanted to play some, some some games. Huh? Do you remember which one? Um, I mean, back in the time, I guess there was Diablo 2, Age of Empires. These were the things that kept me hooked. Yeah. And basically, one had to hack a lot of stuff to get it to work in my Pintune 2. Yeah, it was a great learning experience, even though I didn't know it conscientiously. Like yeah. I had to go into the OS and figure out, kill every other process that could be killed and make sure that the things yeah. would still work. Yeah. I love that time. And there was a lot of energy for me into this kind of real-time strategy games, simple rules, complex systems, which kind of kept me hooked. Somehow I managed to then invest this energy that I found there more into kind of programming once I got those skills. And yeah, that gives me also a lot of confidence when programming after doing so much on the side, exploring my own ideas, which I think was very helpful. And it's the same energy that comes back then, like looking at this system yeah. is working. Where were you at that point in time? Were you in Brazil? In Brazil. Oh. Yeah. And, and you mentioned programming in, in general. Um, I'm going to ask you a controversial question. What's the most beautiful programming language? <laughs> yeah, I, I, 
depends on which criteria I would say I have done my share of exploring programming languages. I had a brilliant friend at some point that was really genius level into programming languages and I got super inspired for him and I yeah. did my own research and explored really tons of the programming languages. And my conclusion after doing that for a long time was simple is the most beautiful, like solving problems fast and reliably. That's, that's a superpower to come back a big fan of Python. I also help the community in ways that yeah. I can organizing PyData conference. And I'm happy that data science and Python also found like a perfect yeah. match there. And that's from overall programming language question. But if you would ask from purity perspective, like of mathematical purity, uh, for sure, uh, the answer would land more kind of Haskell or Elm or languages like this. As, as, as a non, as a non-dev, I think I also find Python to be very inclusive and accessible as a language. And the community there, there is so is a, strong. a lot of beauty on that also that it's an open community with open values and yeah, yeah that, that it's a big plus. Yeah, I agree with you totally. And you transitioned from building really complex things also from a research. You were doing research back in Brazil, right? Um, Not exactly. It was more of an academic context, building hardware or like prototyping hardware for like accessibility mm -hmm. use cases. Okay. Can you expand a bit more on that? The biggest project that was involved there was around like a Braille reader, some pins, hardware pins that goes up as you are reading something in the computer. So the blind person can basically, yeah, read the computer, what's going on. Oh, nice. Yeah. The project was not really successful by the time I left. I spent <laughs> so long. Yeah. Yeah. But I designed the, the kind of electronic prototype and that worked well and they were happy with the results. But to the toughest part to scale at that point was the hardware and I had no clue about that. It was yeah. being developed on the side by other folks. And then you transitioned into a dev job. Yes. How, how did that transition go? I think the context is rather different, right? You are into this kind of more research kind of exploration which is very low level, more yeah. going to electronic side. I studied electronics for some time and then moving to programming as main task. And then it's about building things reliably fast. I think knowing the low level really gives you an extra hint on how to build things in the right way. Yeah, that certainly helped. I really liked to go higher level over time. I, first, I was really passionate about, oh, the bytes here going through and there. <laughs> But over time, it became all about how can you solve this problem uh, in the right way. And how long have you been doing this now? Yeah, more than 10 years. This was um, 2012. Yeah. And when did you move to Berlin? 2018. Okay. Did you move for Get Your Guide, by the way? Yes. Okay. Yeah, six years now. That's amazing. Half a decade. Yes. More, more than half a decade. Yes. That's, that's great. And we all learn from other people mentors and whatnot. Have mm -hmm. you had those guiding figures in your life uh, who you have learned from? Yes. One very instrumental person in my career was Elto Mineto. He's a, a big relatively to the kind of space that we are like in the software kind of space. Yeah. He's a very well known in Brazil, particularly there in the, he was back in the day in the PHP community and he was a superstar there. Okay. And nowadays he transitioned more into Go and more into tech leadership conversations. Yeah, he was really instrumental very early in my career. He gave that push on going to conferences everywhere and presenting and connecting with the leaders on, on that field and getting to know the kind of people that were moving the needle for that community. And yeah, was really very good for me. In, in general, with events and conferences, what were your biggest uh, learnings as a mentee? 
he teached me a lot about learning through teaching. So if you want to get good at something, it's a very effective way if you have to teach it to somebody. Also, that's most of the people around you, they are struggling with the same stuff, but they usually don't talk about it so much. So if you give a presentation, you're going to find tons of folks that can relate with the problems you're facing, and then you can discuss things and, and move forward. This very open community yeah. mindset of open source also was very much tied to this culture. And do you have current mentors? Do you actually mentor at the moment to anyone? On my current role as a manager, I see there is a relationship here that I'm yeah. very much committed to their growth. How can I move the needle for them further? Yeah, when I was more in an individual contributor role, then I had more kind of a formal mentorship conversations. Yep. Pretty busy with parenthood right now. Yeah. So I will go back to it, but it's good to have a tiny break at the moment. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure, for sure. I, I totally understand. And there, there are key lessons that you learn from people when they mentor you and both as a mentee as well. There was also a part where you were leading the technology part of a startup under his leadership and mentorship what if you go back to that time what are some of the things that come to your mind that really paved path for you for the rest of your career he teach me a lot about how cloud solutions pace like uh, how to build systems for the cloud with this scale that you can solve problems for the entire world yet being very simple the problems ideally are complex and the solution is simple. Trying to really keep the, the simplicity, there is a lot of beauty there and I learned a lot about it as well from him. Also about how to deliver value, iterative and going deep into systems and understanding all the components that yeah. that moves a cloud environment. Yeah. Tons of learning. Cool. <laughs> all right. You mentioned about moving to Berlin for Get Your Guide and you also mentioned about PHP. Mm -hmm. There's a connection there. Take us back to the time when you joined Get a Guide as a PHP engineer. Yes. So under his mentorship, I could very much speed up my career and get very deep into the core communities in PHP and know everybody. So it was relatively easy then to land a job in Europe. If people can find you everywhere online, like in the right communities, then as a developer, it's a great way to get a, a great job. I was pretty happy on the startup there. There was a lot of progress. There was, it was very hard to fail because there was a, a big company behind it. But uh, I wanted a little bit of adventure, quality of life of Europe, and uh, the cool domain of travel. How these things uh, play their role into making it easier. You constantly stress on the topic of devs being a bit more out there, going to conferences, doing meetups, writing blogs, things like that. Knowledge sharing is a big component, I understand, that you are stressing on, both to gain newer perspectives when you share and also to share your perspectives on things. For people who, who are just starting out in these cases or are not that out there specifically, what are some of the things that help you be a little bit more out there, support communities, also do so much at your job and give back? Yeah, great question. I, I think you have to figure out why you are doing it. If you are helping to improve the status quo, so many systems out there are being built. I was very much into kind of Linux at at the beginning of my career, I wanted yeah. to become a Canada developer. But yeah, in part because some folks that wrote the core kernel kind of parts, their code is, the impact of, of that is like huge. If you make a, a contribution to one of these core projects, billions of people all day are using your code. So I think with computer science, if you are really being driven by this kind of impact that you can have in this field, 
then um, I would certainly recommend people to meet other people, to start establishing a connection, build some hobbies, kind of stuff that interests you naturally and just try to play with that idea a little bit, make sure that this work is somewhere visible that other people also can reach it out, like GitHub, of course, is one building this portfolio of things that you're interested about. It's over time that that basically becomes a lot of evidence that you are very much interested in stuff and people will reach out and want to do stuff together. Let's talk about machine learning and let's do a machine learning one uh, <laughs> for everyone. Can you explain what it is, why it matters and why should teams care? Sure. What it is, it's yet another way to solve problems that otherwise could not be solved. The programming, you can do a lot of kind of specific things, but like following recipes, but in machine learning, if you put some data together, you can start looking into predictions. You can start looking into how things would look like if a certain scenario is true or false. And that's extremely powerful in all sorts of scenarios, right? It has such a big potential to use data in healthcare or education, like building predictive uh, systems that can tell you what is your tendency for certain diseases or how to prevent things even mm -hmm. ahead of time. Education as well, how to tailor education to your specific knowledge gaps or your culture and make the most out your specific needs. There's a lot of statistics there looking to historical data on how these things looked for other people and you can really make a dent into these problems at scale. So everybody benefits basically. So that's more kind of society part, but uh, of course for business it's extremely useful as well. You can all sorts of business problems at scale with these tools. It also can be seen as software 2.0, right? That Andrew Kaparje talks about in the uh, famous, famous blog post that the space of things you can solve with software in a Venn diagram is X, but there is a much bigger space that you can solve with data and machine learning and AI too. For, for those who do not know about him, can you? I think he was head of AI at Tesla at yeah. that point, and he was involved in OpenAI, I'm not sure how. He has a very good uh, tutorial on how to build ChatGPT and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I think he, he published that in, um, I think it's a one or two hours video, how to build uh, your custom mm -hmm. GPT, or how to build an LLM or something like that. Mm -hmm. he, I, I find that insane. Like he put mm -hmm. all that knowledge yeah. out there for people to see in a YouTube video. And it's also pretty popular. I see that it's yes. millions of views. I did that tutorial. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I think it speaks a lot to the moment of this openness of knowledge and like, that it makes things much more inclusive. There's other perspectives. People think also, okay, there's these big companies that own all this hardware and, and they control everything. That's certainly something to watch out for. But actually, I feel that there was so much more inclusivity going on yeah. after the introduction of these tools. How have the last 12 months changed for machine learning in general? I mean, in different ways, as I mentioned in, in, in the beginning, there's an overlap of forces, standard Machine learning can bring a lot of good practices to the LLM space because there we already figure out so much, but the other around as well, right? Like the power of the language can uh, unlock so many new opportunities and possibilities that these models are so good with language, you can solve some problems much faster, uh, although reliably is still an open question, but we are working on this and making progress. Uh, so there is a lot on, on this aspect of just unlocking possibilities that before would be too costly to build or you would take so much more time to build it or much more people. And now it reduces a lot of the complexity, allows people to focus more in solving the problem rather than all this kind of technical 
sub problems that arises when you have to build this stuff from scratch. You've been pretty active in the MLOps community as well. How did you get involved? Yeah, that ties very much into my transition from a PhD engineer to more into the machine learning field. Three, four years ago, people realized that actually there is a new field here. There was a lot of talks before about Google has been doing this for much longer than four years and the other tech giant. But I think that there was like the realization that this was important for business because a lot of people wanted to put machine learning into production and didn't know how. And there was a long time where there was a a model of throw over the fence problem that you assume that there is a data scientist with the particular skill set, they solve the problem and then they send to the engineering team and then they solve the problem. But actually there is a better way to do it, which is you keep the ownership within a data science team of going to production and you try to understand what are the needs there and build the tools and the systems around that fulfill those needs. And there's quite some particular needs to go to production with machine learning. Yeah. So Get Your Guide was in that point as well. We were struggling to put ML to production. And MLOps arises this topic. There was Demetrios kind of leading this very famous community podcast. Back then it was mostly a podcast. The guy's super funny. And uh, I I messaged him at some point. Hey, do you want to come to to talk to us and Get Your Guide about the stuff that you are doing? I think there is overlap. We met. He came in our online conference and we had a, a great time and Eventually, we decided to create a MLOps position and get your guide. I transitioned to there, and I've been connected to the MLOps community so far. We created a Berlin chapter of the meetup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tons of learnings. We run a lot of meetups. Well, the first one in Get Your Guide. The second one was in Vote. The third one was in Google. The fourth is going to happen soon. So looking forward to that. Can you expand on the role of an, of an MLOps engineer? What okay. does a day-to-day look like? What are, yeah, what are the, the challenges? Uh, I think what, it has to go back to what is MLOps, right? There's everything around trying to go to production with machine learning. So it's not about modeling. It's about what are the tools and the ecosystems that one needs around it, like which systems need to be in place to do it reliably. So the MLOps engineer will basically support data products team. So we're building machine learning in production to serve the customer in data products. So the data scientist has a modeling problem, how to fulfill that use case with the systems, which systems need to be in place to get the right data at the same time to make sure that the data remains, you need to observe it. So to to make sure that the data remains constant, you need to basically figure out how you do machine learning. There's a lot of uh, model features, which you get the data, you transform it in a right way, and that has to be retrieved in the right way also in production. So one needs to be figure out how to do that uh, for production use cases where you have maybe thousands of requests per second or you have a huge scale or on the data load, like terabytes of data to process. So how to retrieve data correctly, how to make sure that it's observable, how to make sure that your system that uses machine learning is optimized to be fast enough because that's a compute bound problem usually. Mm -hmm. So you have to do some compute and return the result. And there's tons in the particular models that needs to be optimized. Yeah, looking to how to run it reliably in production, keeping costs at bay, keeping scale ready, which tools needs to be in place. Can you take a real-life example for Get Your Guide and mm-hmm. explain what does a day-to-day look like? One of my favorite problems is the real-time runcars. For each activity, you're seeing Get Your Guide's website. There is a system that after these activities that can fit somehow that location were defined. There is a system to 
define which order those activities should appear. So what comes first? And what comes first is usually has to be what you want. And so there's a system that takes input about your context, where you are, the kinds of things that you've been interested in Get Your Guide so far, and basically figure out which activities to show you next. But that's a very high scale, right? Uh, like thousands of requests per second in, and in the high peak. And there is a machine learning model basically deciding that question. What fascinated you about data products? You mentioned briefly about it and get your guide. I well, mean, and also, mm -hmm. what can you tell us a bit more about the team in general? Yes. Well, what is data products? We are basically building machine learning solutions for solving customer problems. And yeah, as short as that. So looking into basically the customer journey and all its experience and figuring out how data can make that better and uh, optimize it to make it more relevant or get you the right content in place at the right time. That's basically what this team is about. I think what fascinated me about this area in general is indeed the natural kind of inherent complexity of the problem and the real impact you can have with it at scale. So you can really change the experience of so much people with yeah, looking at the right problem. So there's a lot of emphasis in problem definition, figuring out how to crack that in a sort of a mathematical way also. So mm -hmm. I, I like the inherent complexity of solving problems like this and having them at scale. So I think these are kind of ways in, that I in, got attracted to it. In, in complex systems like you work on, what's a decision-making framework like? Well, how do you make decisions? How do you choose not just what to work on, but how do you decide what's worth it in general? Yeah, we tie a lot back to get your guide values and this emphasis in impact. Yeah, that is a big lever. Also, strategic considerations is this important for the business, not only now, but in five years or longer. And how we decide on if we are successful or not as part of, of the rest of the tech organization. We are very much experiment-oriented and data-oriented, so there's a lot of A-B testing going on. That's the way we operate. And in data products, we are saying now more often than not, we have superpowers of like knowledge sharing, a lot of trust yeah. and yeah. a lot of knowledge sharing. Yeah, that's really helps a lot and makes it very engaging to keep trying to solve problems there every more kind of impactful and so on. By knowledge sharing, you mean you, you have sessions weekly and, and things like that? Yes, we have a great collaborative culture, a huge overlapping values and uh, the same kind of passion for mm -hmm. core kind of topics and ceremonies and we try to look into the way we work together continuously to make it as streamlined as possible and a lot of knowledge sharing through presentations and meetups and, and so on. What are some of the key skills that and qualities you look for in, in your team members? The Get Your Guide Framework helps a lot here. Having this cultural values, it's, it's important having a big overlap in them, having an impact-oriented mindset. So how can you make the biggest change for the customer? Ownership is also important, what you build, you are responsible for, and if it needs to change, you are also responsible for that. Can you expand on, on that a bit more? Yes, this goes back also to the topic I mentioned with MLOps, that things has been done in the longest time to go to production with machine learning through throwing over the fence the problem, and suddenly becomes, you build something, the other person has to replicate that in another system to basically make it work. And we managed to change that to you build it you want. So as a data scientist, you have a lot of ownership mm -hmm. uh, on the model that you build. There, We put tools in place that you can also observe how that changes over time and a lot of automation. 
So for instance, there is this concept of drift. Let's say the world changed. There is now, I don't know, one market becomes more popular than the other. There's seasonality. All these things influence a data product, right? So one needs to be on top of them. Performance can degrade over time. So mm -hmm. ownership here means we build something and we keep iterating on it and make sure that it keeps working the right way. How much of that is also about the landscape in your field changes a lot? What advice would you give to people to be on top of things in general? I think being really driven by your core passions, looking for what is that and how that can overlap with what is going on around you. And that, that naturally creates energy to basically go out and meet people or learn a new topic. Also having this mindset of sharing the knowledge, right? So if you're constantly looking, how can I add value here? Which topics will be important in some time? Yeah, this continuous interest about the field leads to a lot of drive on itself and a lot of energy to, to continue doing it. And things get easier to do over time. So it's rewarding also to see we're making progress, right? It's not only about, yeah, collecting more information. You're solving problems better. You're solving more problems or at a different scale. What do you do when you hit a roadblock? Continue talking. I would say there, will, there is always so many other options and continue brainstorming. There is always alternatives. Uh, we, we sometimes feel we are stuck, but it's just give a step back. And, and really, the stuck situation is often the case, not really there. Yeah. Cool. Last question. What has been your more recent get to guide activity? What did you do? Ah, I had the last year a very special, no, it was this year. A special vacation. My granny came from Brazil. First, first time in a commercial airplane, actually. <laughs> so changing nice. continents. Uh, yeah, she stayed three months here. And we went within this travel also to Italy. As she wanted to see the Vatican and the Pope and so on. So yes, I did book some, cool? yeah, quite some stuff there with Get Your Guy. The Vatican yeah, Museum was quite memorable. Take all of us back to that moment. How was it? It's breathtaking to see so much history. Yeah, like... Quite memorable trip, a lot of beautiful moments that also resonates a lot, right, with the Get Your Guide way that so much about memories. And this was really one of the best highlights of quite some recent years. I would what say. did your granny think? <laughs> she loves it and she's coming again next year. <laughs> <laughs> now she wants to go to Paris. <laughs> cool. Paris, Paris is a beautiful city. Yes, we're going to take her there. Cool. Very cool. Thanks so much for coming in today. It was a pleasure talking to you about Thank so many things. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And have fun. Thanks so much and have a good stuff of the week for you. Likewise. Uh, great fun here. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you, John. <laughs>